I would invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 19 this morning. But before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our Father, we bow in humility before you, acknowledging our great need. We need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that are receptive to your truth, and pray that you would be at work in the inner man within each one of us to live joyfully, submissively under the authority of your word, to live watchfully as we consider the warning and the charge of this text of Scripture. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Perhaps like me, you oftentimes experience that inner conflict in which, on the one hand, you want to be informed of the things in this world. You don't want to be in the dark about cultural trends or popular thinking, but when you open up your news app or when you read something online, you think, could the world around us get any more insane? Can the prevailing cultural worldview be any more depraved than it is? And sure enough, the next thing that you read, the next thing that you hear about still somehow shocks and saddens you at the same time. When I was a kid, I used to like to watch those candid camera shows in which some prank is played on an unsuspecting person, and when it's revealed to them that it's all a joke, it's kind of a similar expression, of course. Why would I ever think that this is real? That's the feeling I get sometimes with the differing ideologies around us that are gaining ground. Ideologies which deny some of the most basic foundational truths about God's created order. Is it all just an elaborate, candid camera show that we're just going to wake up from one day? Well, at the very least, we know that these things will end when our Savior returns at the end of the age. There's so much seems to be raging out of control in the world around. The adage from Ecclesiastes remains true, that there is nothing new under the sun. 
even the ludicrous things that we see in the world around in which good is called evil and evil is increasingly called good, the particulars might be unique to the time in which we live, but the universal truth remains. We are fallen in Adam, and those apart from Christ Jesus are hell-bent upon seeking to destroy God's good creation order because we have been deceived by the evil one and we have given ourselves over to deception. But our God remains faithful. Our God sits in sovereign rule and reign upon his throne over all things. And he has wondrous purpose in all that comes about. This is the message that we find throughout the pages of Scripture. And this is a message that we hear in the book of Hebrews. And this is a message that we need to hear with great frequency from the Word of God even this morning. The book of Hebrews is a book that was written to Christians living with the same tension that God's people live with today and the same tension that God's people will always live with until that final day. We believe certain things to be true. We believe in the Word of God and in His promises, and we want to walk by faith. But at times, we can't help but wonder, can anything good come out of these circumstances? Is God really in control? If I find myself living by sight instead of faith, I can quickly find myself slipping into despair. We know that Christ is coming. We know that this life will not last forever. But how will I know that we will endure to the end? And how do I know that I will endure to the end? And what does the resurrection and ascension work of Christ Jesus have to do with the daily temptations, struggles, trials, and doubts that I may experience? In a word, what are the present benefits of union with Christ? And this is where the book of Hebrews can be of such wonderful help to us. As you know, Pastor Williams has written a very clear and, and helpful commentary on the book of Hebrews in which he writes, Hebrews was written to people like us, to Christians who were nearing exhaustion in their trials and struggles to live gratefully and obediently in response to the gospel. And so in order to press us on toward a life of grateful obedience, what the writer of Hebrews does throughout his book is he draws heavily upon the experience of the children of Israel in that period of history between their deliverance from Egypt and entrance into the land of promise. And he wants us to see that in many ways we are just like the children of Israel awaiting that final rest. And just as they were called to persevere in that season of travel, we too are called to persevere through this earthly life. Just as they were to be watchful against the trials that came from the world around and the various temptations that arose within their own hearts, we too are to be watchful against the temptation toward unbelief. And so this morning, we want to think about the warnings that are offered to us when we are tempted, not if, but when we are tempted toward unbelief. And we want to look to Christ Jesus, our beloved author and finisher of our faith. And so first this morning from our text, the writer of Hebrews begins with a plea in verses 7 and 8. And this is our first point this morning, a plea from the writer. And this plea is very straightforward and clear. Hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. And notice that this plea is prefaced almost with this passing comment that the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says, hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. 
This is, you see, the living God in the person of the Holy Spirit himself who is offering this warning to us. And what is explicit here is true of every part of God's Word. It is the Holy Spirit who has spoken the Word of truth to us. This is why we hold the Word of God in such high regard as divine truth. Because this is not just the writer's insight, because he's a great student of church history. This is not something that he has just deduced because he understands something unique about human nature. This is God's warning. This is the person of the Holy Spirit speaking to us from God's Word, telling us to listen to God's Word, and we would be wise to listen. And notice in this warning that the Holy Spirit is really holding out to us only one of two options, either heed His voice or harden your heart. There is no third option here. And you've heard us say this many times from the pulpit here at Covenant. There is no position of neutrality when it comes to responding to God's Word. Whether it's your reading of Scripture, whether it's the teaching or the proclamation of God's Word, your response is either one of increased softening before the Word of truth or hardening toward the Word of God. It is the same sun that softens the clay, hardens the clay rather, and softens the wax. In a sense, what we're learning here is something very critical. I would argue something very foundational to the Christian life, and that is listening requires a posture of humility. Listening requires you to be teachable. Listening requires you to be willing to be corrected. And we all know that to truly listen is more than just comprehending grammatical structures or even logical syllogisms, but to truly listen according to biblical criteria requires an inward disposition of reception. True listening requires an inward receptiveness. And it is the Holy Spirit who alone grants that inward certainty of God's revelation. I think that one of the unfortunate consequences in this information age in which we live is that we can present ourselves as experts on virtually anything. We read a few articles online, we watch a few YouTube videos, and we convince ourselves that we know everything that we need to know. And our knowledge might be a mile wide, but it's oftentimes an inch deep. And when we presume that we know all that we need to know, well, then we're going to be kept from truly listening. Instead, to heed God's Word requires you to recognize that you do not know all that you need to know. It presumes that you must have a humble and teachable heart. And while the fallen heart in Adam pushes back against authority and resists his correction, the plea is to hear the voice of God. Hear His voice, not only here in Hebrews chapter 3, but hear His voice throughout the pages of Scripture and hunger in your own life for greater and greater obedience. And so, this plea that He begins this reasoning, this line of reasoning here with, starts as a foundation, as the starting point from which the rest of His instruction then follows. Come, with a teachable, humble posture to the Word of God. If you instead come to the Word of God with a critical spirit in which you're sort of looking to just push back against the clarity of what you read, if you're looking to argue with the text of Scripture 
perhaps convincing yourself that what the church has held to be true for hundreds and hundreds of years is outdated or doesn't account for the complex ethical situations in which we find ourselves living, or if you try to nuance away the clear commands of God in order to make room for something like cultural accommodation, that will only result in hardness of heart, because as the writer of Hebrews says, it reflects a spirit of unbelief. And so, listen and be teachable, and humble yourself before the loving authority of God's Word. And that leads us to the second thing that we find in our text, which is to learn from others, to learn from the children of Israel in particular, and we see this in verses 8 through 11. And so, if the plea is for us to heed, to listen, lest we be growing in hardness of heart, well, we have a test case here to learn from the children of Israel. Now, on Sunday evenings, we've been slowly working our way, and I emphasize the word slowly, through the book of Exodus. And you might remember that no sooner are the Israelites freed from captivity in Egypt that they are faced with a test. Are they going to believe in the Word of God and trust that He has the ability to care for them and provide for their needs? And of course, they fail that test miserably. They grumble first because there's no suitable drinking water. They grumble again because there's no food, and they grumble a third time because there is no water. And this is all within a matter of weeks, if not days. We read earlier this morning from Numbers chapter 14 when judgment was pronounced upon the children of Israel for their rebellion against the Lord. It was that period of history in which they finally had made it to the edge of the land of promise, and you'll recall the ten of the twelve spies brought back that negative report. It's true that it's a bountiful land, but the enemies are too great for us, and we cannot overtake it. And there in Numbers 14, in verse 22, we read that they tested the Lord these ten times by not listening to His voice. In other words, over and again, they repeatedly showed themselves to have recalcitrant hearts. This was not an isolated event. They were not sentenced to die in the wilderness because the emotions got the better of them on one particularly hot day in the desert, as though God is being unreasonable in His judgment of them. But this spirit of grumbling and complaining happened over and over again. It started over something seemingly small, but it set the trajectory of their heart against God. And they failed to repent, and they persisted in repeatedly putting the Lord God to the test questioning His goodness and His care for them, doubting His power and His ability to make good upon His promises, and attacking the veracity, the very truth of God's Word. It was nothing more than taking themselves and elevating the self above the Lord God, indicting Him, bringing charges against Him. Now, these various trials were brought into the life of the nation of Israel to test them, to help them see what was in their own hearts to test whether they would truly believe the Word of the Lord and walk in obedience to His commandments, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. But instead, they presumed upon the goodness of God, and they turned things around by putting God to the test. And the writer of Hebrews is abundantly clear. It is the grumbling that both reveals the condition of their heart, and it's grumbling that feeds that heart, making it harder still. 
This is why things like grumbling and complaining are never little sins for us to dismiss in our own lives because, well, hey, everybody complains about something. But you see, it's that murmuring, discontent spirit that reveals a heart that is displeased with the Lord. Perhaps we don't like the circumstances that God has brought into our lives. We would much prefer circumstances that are filled with comfort and ease, and we feel justified when we have a critical spirit. Or perhaps we don't care for the trials that the Lord has brought into our lives. We don't like the things that are being revealed in our hearts through those hardships. Or perhaps we find ourselves quickly annoyed with certain people in our lives, wishing that God would just make them different or that He should have made them different from the beginning. And that critical spirit, you see, when it goes unchecked, reveals a heart that increasingly wishes to be God rather than trust God. A grumbling spirit when not addressed is a big deal because if you don't believe and trust in the Lord with the little things in life, then you will question Him when the larger hardships and trials may come. All grumbling is against the Lord and has an eroding effect upon our belief and trust in Him. And so, if we want to learn from the children of Israel, to learn from the example that they are portrayed for us here in Hebrews 3, then we need to take time to really uncover the dark recesses of our own hearts, which may not be a particularly pleasant thing to do. And so, if we were to press even deeper, what was it that was at the core of their rebellion? What was it that was the underlying sin that brought this judgment upon them for which the entire nation was sentenced to die in the wilderness? Well, this is the third thing to see from our text, and that is the evil of unbelief. And we see this in verses 12 and following. It was an evil, unbelieving heart that led them to fall away. And so we might ask, well, what was it exactly that they didn't believe? What should they have believed about the Lord, and where did they fail to believe? What should their response have been to the Lord God? Now, again, when you read through those Old Testament narratives, you find that their unbelief can be summarized, I think, into three things. They distrusted God's ability, they questioned the Lord's character, and they doubted His presence. Let's think about each of those for a moment. First, they distrusted God's ability. Though they had seen with their very eyes the Lord pour out those ten plagues upon the Egyptians, bringing about their freedom from slavery, though they had seen the parting of the Red Sea and walked across the dry ground and the armies of the Egyptians decimated behind them, they now question whether God is able to provide things like daily food and water. Well, yes, He can accomplish things on a grand scale. He holds the universe together and causes the sun to rise and fall and is in control of all things, but what about me and my desires? And for us, the reasoning is all too similar. Christ Jesus came into this world to live a perfect life of joyful, loving obedience to all of the commands of the Lord, and then took the penalty that I deserved upon Himself as He became a curse for me, was laid dead in the tomb, rose in resurrection life, and ascended victorious on high. But is He able to help me resolve this conflict 
and dispute that has been going on for so long? Is he able to provide for my needs as I worry about my future? Is he able to give me what I need to make it through this hardship? Second, they question God's character. If he really is good, if he really is loving, if he really cares about us, if he cares about me, then why is life so hard? Why is life filled with so much disappointment? Why are things so difficult? Why do trials seem to be so intense? perhaps frequent and unpleasant. And third, they also doubted God's presence. Is He really among us or not? Does He even know what we're going through? Does He know my anguish? Does He understand my inward turmoil and struggles? And so, all of these things together contributed to a heart of unbelief. And that hard heart of unbelief manifested itself in distrust to the point that they wanted to return to the land of Egypt, back to that former way of life in slavery. And what was it that was so enticing about the land of Egypt that they wanted to return to? What was it about that former way of life that had such a pull upon their hearts? Of course, it wasn't the reality of what life was like back there in Egypt, but it was the illusion of predictability and comfort, among other things. You see, out here in the desert, who knows what tomorrow might hold? I have to trust God every single day to provide food. At least there in Egypt, I know what tomorrow holds. I got to make another pile of bricks. And I know that they'll at least give me some food because they need me to have enough energy to make those bricks. You see, the relevance of all of these warnings to us is to help us see that we are all prone to this same spirit of unbelief. Don't ever presume that you are beyond the temptation of unbelief or distrust of the Lord. We all face the temptation to turn away from following Christ and looking to the pleasures of this world. We are tempted to focus upon things like self-interest and self-focus to presume that life is all about me and everybody who's in my life is there to cater to my desires. We are tempted to presume that the Lord owes us a better life than the one that we have. We oftentimes value comfort and ease more than holiness of life. And when there is that sense of inward conviction, we are tempted to put it off, to come back to it later on in life by quickly dismissing perhaps the correction of God's Word. Again, the children of Israel did not fall away from the living God overnight, but it was that gradual drift in which the deceit and evil of unbelief grew within their hearts. And this is why in Hebrews 3 there is such urgency. Do not put off the appropriate conviction that God's Word brings into your life. And if God's Word does not bring conviction into your life, that brings us back to the first point. Are you really listening to the Word of the Lord and hearing His voice? In Mark chapter 4, a text that Pastor Mark Williams will come to in just a few weeks in his study through the book of Mark, Jesus tells that parable of the soils, in which you'll remember the sower scatters the seed upon all the various types of soil, the seed representing the Word of the Lord, the various soils representing differing hearts of mankind. And as the gospel goes out, there are some who seem to embrace that hope of grace. But when tribulation or persecution come, 
they fall away, Jesus says there in verse 17. Or maybe it's the cares of this world. Maybe it's the deceitfulness of riches. Maybe it's the desires for other things that enter into the heart and choke out the Word. Charles Hodge, writing nearly 200 years ago, captures what has always been true of mankind. Men are simply busy with other things. They do not delight themselves in the message that has come to them. It's as though they didn't even hear it. They did not retain God in their minds, and they stopped up their ears. So how do we fight against all these various types of temptations that we face in our lives? How do we fight the prevalence of such temptations? How do we fight the subtle nature of those temptations? How do we fight the deceptive nature of them? How do we address the temptations in our own life to distrust God's ability, to question His character, and to doubt His presence? Well, this is where I think a mature and growing doctrine of God can be of help to us. And maybe you're thinking, oh, you Presbyterians, always bringing it back to theology. But you see, theology is the lifeblood of faithfulness to the Lord. The more that we know Him, the more we will love Him. The more that we love Him, the more we will know Him and long to walk in obedience. Herman Bavink says, in His Word, God has shown us who He is and what He has done. And the more that we focus upon God and reflect upon God, the more it will move us toward adoration and worship. And so theology is eminently practical and livable because it deals with our most basic need, who God is, what He has done, and what He is continuing to do in our lives. Now, you see, in the context of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews is helping us to see that Jesus is a greater than Moses. And if the children of Israel who came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses and saw and experienced the wonder of God's redeeming power, and if they were made recipients of His great mercy, and yet if their hearts to some degree remained unaffected with no lasting impact upon that inner man, and if this was their judgment to die in the wilderness, then how much more the severity on that final day for those who have had really so much more than they do and yet continue to walk in distrust and unbelief. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit available to us to speak these words of warning and also to minister to our hearts and to help us in temptation. And so to remain unaffected, to remain cold within your heart, to continue in spiritual lethargy is to set the course of your heart on a trajectory toward destruction. Here in Central Florida, we have occasionally on those certain mornings that morning mist that will develop into sometimes a thick and dense and dangerous fog In a morning commute, there might be massive pileups on our interstates and even traffic fatalities. And you could liken that to spiritual lethargy, something that could very dangerously and slowly cloud the heart, and like a dense fog putting everything else out of perspective while your life is in danger. 
So how should we respond to these warnings from the Holy Spirit? What should we do to be on guard against the deception and the temptations that we face in our own life? What should our response be to all these various warnings? Well, that's our fourth and final point this morning, which gets at our responsibilities, our responsibility to heed these warnings. And first, there's the responsibility to be watchful over your own heart. I think we see this back in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest any of you fall away. Take care to cultivate a humble and teachable heart. Be watchful. Give attention with those mental faculties, as it were. And this watchfulness has to do with cultivating a disciplined heart, a self-controlled heart that is being subdued by the Holy Spirit. In a little book on the fruit of the Spirit, Jonathan Landry Cruz writes that self-control is the power to wait on a perceived good or withhold present desire with the knowledge of a guaranteed better in the future. In other words, self-control is the grace of God teaching us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to the pleasures that tempt us because of the guarantee of what awaits us in Christ Jesus, Titus 2.11. And it is a rest that we have in Christ Jesus that begins even now in the present life and carries us into eternity. And as the world around us becomes more insane, that future hope helps to free our hearts from the attachments of this world. Church history has shown that in seasons of persecution, believers in Christ become more resilient and follow Christ with greater zeal. Certainly a time is coming for the church of the Lord Jesus. John MacArthur illustrates the calling of this text like this. He says, the warning here from Hebrews 3 is to those who know the gospel who affirm its truth, and who because of love of sin or fear of persecution or whatever it may be have not committed themselves to the truth they know is real. It is as if there were a fire in a hotel and they are on the tenth floor. And because there's a net below, the firemen are yelling to jump. But they do not jump. They hesitate. They are well aware of the danger and they know the net is their only way of escape, but they do not act on what they know to be true and necessary. They are concerned about saving some of their possessions, or perhaps they think that somehow they can find another way out. They may be afraid of being hurt from the fall. Some might even be concerned about how they would look while jumping, afraid of embarrassment. But the point is this, simply knowing about the danger and knowing about the way out of it will not save them. If they do not jump, they will die. When your very life is at stake, nothing else should matter. And so the urgency here in the text to be watchful is because of the eternal state of our souls. The urgency is because you never know the last time you might hear the call of the gospel of Christ Jesus. As most of you probably know, just this past week, our denomination, the PCA, lost two very faithful men in our denomination just one day apart as Harry Reeder was killed in a traffic accident and Tim Keller died um, from his long-time struggle with cancer. Men who were very faithful to persevere in their zeal for Christ Jesus, men who undoubtedly took to heart very seriously the warnings of such places of Scripture like this. 
We never know when it might be the last time that we hear the call of the gospel. And as we're seeking to be watchful over our own hearts, we see in verse 13 that there is actually another responsibility, and that is the charge to exhort, to warn one another, to encourage one another. It's not just church leaders who have this responsibility to care for one another, but it's the duty of each one of us to encourage one another in the Christian life while being patient with varying degrees of maturity among us in our church family. And there's some very simple ways for us to do this. This is on a weekly basis. Look for those who normally sit around you, and when you don't see them, follow up with a quick email, a note, a call, or a text. Ask for ways that you can pray for one another and follow up with those prayers as you genuinely remember to pray for such things. And this charge to mutual encouragement is reiterated later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how we might stir one another up or spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not neglect to meet together as the habit of some, but let us encourage one another. There's that word again from Hebrews 3.13. Let us encourage one another and all the more as you see that day drawing near. And why is there this frequency there in verse 13 to encourage one another every single day? Well, we need that daily encouragement because of the deceptive nature of sin. Palmer Robertson writes, we must daily be teachable, daily be watchful, daily recognize and acknowledge the wickedness of our hearts. And what is it that we ought to be encouraged to do? Well, to cling to Christ, to grow in our affection for Christ Jesus to grow in our love for the Word of the Lord, to desire to be conformed more and more to that Word of truth. But there's a flip side to this in our responsibilities, not just to be watchful over our own lives, as it were, to be an encouragement to others, but to be willing to be encouraged, corrected, and exhorted lovingly. None of us is beyond the need for encouragement. None of us has arrived at such a heightened level of maturity that we don't need one another in our lives. John Owen says, there isn't a Christian in this world, no matter how godly or mature, who wouldn't fall into as many horrible sins as anybody ever did if he neglects his daily duty to be killing indwelling sin. And so we need the loving correction of God's Word to more clearly identify that indwelling sin. We need the encouragement of one another to more fully and faithfully rest upon Christ alone. These truly are perilous times for God's people. The deception of sin is all around, and there are no shortage of opportunities for us to be tempted by the things of this world, tempted to wander, to stray, to grow cold and lethargic in our pursuit of Christ. And it's in little moments every single day that we are faced with choices before us. And so we are to be watchful and we are to be vigilant. We are either growing in faith and obedience or we are growing in unbelief and disobedience. But why do all of this? Why even care about heeding these warnings from Hebrews chapter 3? 
because something awaits you in that heavenly eternal rest that is so much greater than anything that this world has to offer. You see, the children of Israel on that fateful day, they were just so close. They were there along the southern border of the promised land. They could see, not with eyes of faith, they failed to see with eyes of faith, but with their physical eyes, they could peer in and see the land of promise. It was theirs to take by faith, but they rejected the Word of God and instead chose unbelief. And so, they refused entrance. They were refused entrance because of that rebellion. And similarly, we are standing and looking with eyes of faith on the edge of eternity. This earthly life is almost over. No matter how old you might be, no matter what stage of life you are in, we are all on the verge of passing from this life into the life to come. And it is the promise of God that is before us while the temptations of the world are all around. But God is with us, and He is able to bring us home. He is trustworthy, and He is good, and He is faithful. And so heed His voice. As much as this is a text of Scripture that offers us warning, and it certainly is a warning that we should heed, but it is a text that offers to us great and lasting comfort. As we see there in verse 14, we have come to share in Christ, that greater than Moses, the one who is faithful and the one who is able to carry you to that final day. Moses could not shoulder the burden of this entire nation. Moses could not atone for the sins of the people. For Moses himself was a sinner in need of grace, and he was not permitted to enter into the land of promise. Moses could offer warnings, but he could not change hard hearts. But we have one who can do all of these things, one who is gentle, one who is lowly, and calls us to cast all of our burdens and anxieties and all of our sins upon Him, for He atones even for that unbelief as we look to Him for pardon. We have one who can change those hard hearts and make those hearts, hearts of flesh, pliable in the Lord's hands. And for the one who shares in Christ, He will enable you to hold on to the very end. And so, feed your mind and heart with the glories and the excellencies of Christ. For the one who shares in Christ will indeed hold firm to the end. May God be pleased to work such persevering grace in the lives of His children.